Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Cretella and Sura Chalier for their discussion on Awakening One's Inner Guide. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. So welcome, everyone. And Sora, welcome to Alchemical Dialogues. Thank you, Henry. I'm so glad to be here today with you and with our future listeners and with our guests, too. Thanks for coming. So those of you who are listening, Sura Charlier is a friend and director of the Kalyan Center, a Sufi Universalist Center in Bradenton, Florida. It's dedicated toward the awakening of humanity to the divinity of the soul. She serves as a spiritual guide, and today we're going to be talking about awakening our own inner wisdom and power and following our own guidance. Sura is also a composer and professional musician who uses music as a means of collective healing, connection, and inspiration. So, Sura, would you be willing to start with a piece of music? I would, and I will. Thank you. This is um, a piece of music that came to me on a retreat, and I learned to, well, create since creativity is uh, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, then I try to have my catching devices. And so I record the things, the snippets, or if I wake up in the night, I try to record them or my dream or my idea. And so I record the uh, musical snippets from the retreats because they end up being some of the most powerful music. And then I turn them into songs later. So this one actually was an Om Shanti, but I'm going to just play it with that feeling on my breath. And I invite you, that means, oh, peace, and um, invoking the divine quality of peace. And I'll invite you to have that on your breath, too, as I share this piece of music, Om Shanti.
Shanti, Shanti, Shanti Om. I see we have a baby on board. Welcome. That's the best blessing of all. When we were talking earlier, you talked about music tuning us to the infinite. And I certainly felt a change in the way I felt in the atmosphere and the, the room in which I'm sitting. I don't know if the rest of you on the on the call could feel that. Can you talk a little bit about that and your thoughts and feelings about music as awakening us to our inner wisdom and power? Well, thank you. I, I know that just the sound of the tambura with all its uh, sympathetic strings, we're of course hearing an elect electronic one, which is convenient to take around, but it still has the same effect, the audio effect of those fine strings tuning us to what sounds to me like the eternal. To me, that's the instrument of the eternity and the instrument of splendor is the uh, hammered dulcimer, the cymbalum or santur. So if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a couple paragraphs that are from Hazrat Naik Khan's book about uh, the music of life. And uh, it kind of describes the way I, I try to approach music. It says, besides the beauty of music, there's the tenderness which brings life to the heart. For a person of fine feelings or kindly of kindly thought, life in the world is very trying. It is jarring and it sometimes has a freezing effect. It makes the heart, so to speak, frozen. In that condition, one experiences depression and the whole of life becomes distasteful. The very life, which is meant to be heaven, becomes a place of suffering. If one can focus one's heart on music, it is just like warming something that was frozen. The heart returns to its natural condition, and the rhythm regulates the beating of the heart, which helps to restore health of body, mind, and soul, and bring them to their proper tuning. The joy of life depends upon the perfect tuning of mind and body. There's a mouthful. Yes, those beautiful thoughts. For those of you listening who don't know, Anaya Khan was a, an Indian sage who brought the first person who brought organized Sufism to the West. He was a musician. An he was a master in, musician. Master musician, yes. And singer, too. Mm -hmm. He really gave a, a body of teachings, and he often referred to music and to rhythm and the importance of attuning and attuning ourselves. So thank you for for sharing his thoughts and his words. Thank you. I think a uh, sincerely shared song is worth a thousand words. <laughs> in, in his life, he, he came, when he came to the West, he came first to the States and he was playing his music. And eventually he stopped playing his music and he gave spiritual teaching. And I can't remember his exact words, but there was a very poignant saying he, he gave up something that meant so much to him for something that was even greater. And the music came through him in a different way, but it was still music. And it had to do with the spiritual attunement that he was able to share with people. I think that is a, a, a capacity, a sensibility that can be developed through music and through other art too. Mysticism. Sure. And yeah. poetry. And... All visual arts. arts and photography and, and science. <laughs> I think why well, stop there? I think anything one does heartfully with deep concentration opens that door to connecting with the soul. Yes. I remember when I when I went to medical school and I decided I was deciding on a specialty. One of the reasons I chose psychiatry is that at least back in those days, it wasn't as biological as it is now. And it very clearly had a lot of art to it. It wasn't so cut and dried. It wasn't so precise in terms of the algorithms weren't as clear. And there was something beautiful about an interaction I could have with a person. And together, that interaction would lead somewhere. And there were guidelines, so it wasn't totally in the dark. But there was a, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about now, there was a music that got created, a rhythm got created, and it was out of that that something something emerged. So when you mentioned science, it was a good reminder that 
whatever we are interested in, whatever we're studying or our vocations and have vocations, they're awesome. There's beauty in all of that. And all of that is reflective of the power and the wisdom that we have within us and that we share with each other. Absolutely. And I think that's really what finding the guide within is about. And today we're um, needing to focus a lot on representation to make sure that all genders and people of all races and culture are represented. Because otherwise, a lot of times you don't see yourself as being able to do that. Like children don't see themselves as being able to be all they can be if they never see anybody that looks like they do or sounds like they do. or mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. And I think the most important part about serving as a spiritual guide is just being as clear a mirror as possible so that your job is to hold up the mirror, mirror on the wall kind of mirror thing right. and, and allow that precious soul to look into there without any distortions. Right, and that's right. what is such a tragedy, I think, when somebody entrusts themselves to the guidance of someone else and then that person, you know, is in it for self-interest or some other reason that isn't really uh, service-oriented. And then that's so painful to the person who trusted. But I think it's also part of the awakening process, the waking up and saying, not that, something else, not this, right, something right, else. Right. So. Can you talk more about your experience as a guide and also a seeker on the path in terms of the mirroring that you mentioned? Because I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I think that we are quite intoxicated by the experience of life and all the pushing and pulling that's going on. And it's confusing. It's hard to sort out. And hopefully we meet people on our spiritual journey that are able to hold the space for us to really speak our most deep, deepest fears, our deepest longings, our deepest truths, our most shameful, unhealed places, and be able to help us to see a larger vision of ourselves, that, they're, that at the core, that each being is absolutely pristine and beautiful and untouched by all the experiences of life. And so to find that we can, by taking a very clear-eyed look at our lives, ourselves, our relationships, our jobs, arrive at a, a place of knowing that we have agency. I mean, some of us have more privilege than others, and therefore more agency. But use the agency you have, you know? Some of the first guides I met just really helped me to see that you know, if you're suffering and you aren't able to change your circumstances, you may need to change yourself and leave those circumstances mm. and to help you to see that we're not as limited as our self-concepts -con would have us believe. We're just not. Right. When I was training as a spiritual guide, Philaid and Iacon, the son of, of an icon, was the head of the order. One of the things he wrote about guidance is that most people, when they come for guidance, want to have a problem fixed. No matter what they say, that's what they want. And that's not really what spiritual guidance is all about. So when you were talking, I was thinking, there's kind of a developmental process waking up to your own inner guide. And that's that I think Pierre Valaya was correct. Pierre means the head of an order that we struggle with the difficulties that we have in life, and we tend to focus on those and want those either to go away, to be better. We want some help with that. But the real guidance is to help somebody get through that stage to get to something that's different. Can you talk a little about that? About that something? Yeah. Then I think we have to talk about the someone. Okay. The capital S, someone. Okay. I call it the someone who lives here. And that being is in all names and forms, constantly breathing itself into form and then inhaling its essence and the wisdom from all experience back into its essence that somehow there's a symbiotic 
relationship between the creator and the creation going on there. Mm -hmm. So I think as people start to do the work, <laughs> I mean, it's life, it's going to have problems, you know, um, right. it's, I liked what Anaya Khan said about uh, in any set of circumstances to ask oneself, what is the opportunity and what is the value of this opportunity that mm -hmm. helps pull you out from being in the fray just enough to really take a gentle in-breath and then be able to have some perspective. So, um, yeah, I think that something Atum O'Kane said one time really struck me. He was um, one of our teachers when I was younger, that everyone is really afraid that if they dig down into their psyche or their heart or their feelings, that they're going to discover some that they're bad or they're ugly or that they're unredeemable. And it's actually the exact opposite, that as you are willing to go there and really go through the layers, there is the most precious, dearest someone. And then all things are flowing from that, that source. So I, I think my brother David is here with us on, um, today on the recording. And something he says as a Christian minister that I appreciate a lot is he said, when people say, oh, no, I'm down to the everlasting arms, and the hymn leaning on the everlasting arms, he said, what a great place to be. Why not just go there in the first place? <laughs> so I think really that as one becomes more familiar with the process of dying to the limited self, and then having that kind of no man or woman or person land that you have to walk through for a while that's just kind of empty nothingness that's frightening, then on the next inhalation, so to speak, metaphorically or even literally, then there's new life springing from within, just as right now with Holy Week, uh, some of us are uh, focusing on crucifixion and resurrection. Well, that's happening. And in Sufis, Sufi terms, we call that uh, fana, the annihilation of the limited self, and baka, which is resurrection in the, let's say, more unlimited version. And then we just keep walking that trail and pushing out, mm -hmm. pushing out the walls as we go. Right. So did you have something you want to add? Probably lots. <laughs> no, we could go off on all sorts of tangents. I told you this could be, you could be coming back for many podcasts if you're willing. Well, I was kind of hoping that you and I could become the click and clack of the, uh, <laughs> of the uh, spiritual lecture uh, circuit, but I can't think of the right name. Maybe somebody will send it in when they hear this. There you go. Something yeah, talk yeah. that rhymes with car talk. Okay. <laughs> So I want to get back to the guidance, though, because I think you bring up something really important. My experience with my guide was really, it was really fortunate. Within the first year of working with him, I got mad at him about something. So I pouted in my room. We were at a group something together. And he came and found me. I'm not sure I told him why I was angry with him. But in any case, he said, what do you think our relationship is? And without thinking, I said, well, right now, I'm paraphrasing. I think I feel like you're teaching me something, but eventually we're going to be more like colleagues. I did not see that coming out of my mouth. I didn't imagine that coming out of my mouth. And he shook his head and he said, right. And he did that. I still relate to him. I, I think of him as my guide. I call him when I have questions or I want to share something. But the nature of the relationship changed. It changed steadily. It changed gradually. And I'm thinking, you know, even in parent-child relationships, in spiritual guide-student relationships, even in psychotherapy, when you have a psychotherapist and a client, one of the dangers is that there's an impression that you're never going to grow up. You're never going to have real agency. There's always going to be some problem you need some help with. You know, the hierarchy stays hierarchical. And you and I are talking about 
awakening to that big self, that inner guide, and recognizing that that really exists in each of us, and we can have faith that it's there, we can have confidence in it, we can learn to work with it. I think that's, to me, that's become such an important part of being on any sort of path. And whether I'm a seeker or a guide, so-called, that's really important to keep in mind. And that's what I think you were talking about so eloquently. Thank you. I, I am really dedicated to that owning one's own truth. And uh, I think ever since I was a little child, I used to wander around the house at night, I guess sleepwalking and saying, what do you mean? Just what do you mean? And my brothers and my sister would tease me about it. But also as I grew older, I just always would say, is that true? Like even about my own things I was saying or my own thoughts or even my own feelings, is that true? And so when I'm speaking about owning one's own, own truth, I'm not talking about on the outward, outermost shell of the onion or peel the onion like, oh, I don't like that person or I, I don't like their dress or, you know, I mean, that's like the outermost layer, mm -hmm. but starting right. to go more deeply, deeply, deeply. Okay, my truth, what's my truth about this? Okay, that that is a prerequisite to being able to do the kind of self-examination to be able to grow. You know, I mean, if you can't hold yourself accountable for your own behavior, or you don't even, you're totally unconscious of it, you're not even like if you notice your breath and you pay attention to your breathing, then you have a lot more likelihood of being self-aware. Okay, we, we accept this as a given, I think, on the spiritual path. And so with that self-awareness, then that implies responsibility, self-responsibility. And then the other half of that is agency. Because if you're unconscious about something, you, how can you change it? So I think these guides help us to, with their kindness and to be able to, um, to locate the, and create the capacity for that. And then the other part of what you mentioned that I've been thinking a lot about uh, recently is about sort of this kind of hero worship, celebrity worship, or mm -hmm. spiritual guru worship, or mm -hmm. past uh, spiritual leaders worship. And I realized that since so many people are not actively participating in, in any kind of organized religious or spiritual tradition anymore, well, then they don't have any kind of way to glorify. And so they're just choosing, or I should say we are choosing, we're choosing to glorify something. Well, if you choose to glorify nature, you'll probably be okay. If you choose to glorify something that's expensive, you might be in credit card debt. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that it's important to find a way that your soul can glorify because then it experiences its own nature, but not necessarily project it at or on to another human being. Because what happens if you are always doing that, then you're selling yourself short. Mm -hmm. And so many uh, of us, especially women, uh, some men too, are uh, are uh, conditioned to acculturated to uh, supporting others, support the other, and also in our Judeo-Christian kind of orientation uh, in the U.S., it's always you know be meek, be humble, support other people, don't say anything if somebody does something bad to you. And, you know, it just really isn't helpful to have that kind of uh, um, a spiritual belief system because I don't know anybody who comes into their own in the, that kind of thing unless you are born a saint. And I think that's very few. There are very few people born yeah. that way. One of the stages is to see something in another and then to be able to have that mirrored back into yourself. So it's not that we don't appreciate other people or see the value that other people have, but at the same time, being able to be confident that we have that same within ourselves. 
that it isn't just a one-way street. Absolutely. And I always like sharing some of my favorite books. And I've been reading Hope, this um, book by Jane Goodall with Douglas Abrams. Um, Jane went from studying chimpanzees to becoming a world international uh, motivational speaker. And she talks about that in her book. She references some sociological research and she says there's four elements that are necessary for hope. The first is setting a realistic goal. The second is having measurable steps along that and being able to make progress. The third is having self-confidence. And the fourth, which isn't always added in the studies but was here, is support. So that can be community support. It can be support from your own self your own family. And uh, I just think so many people end up kind of defaulting to supporting other people and not really supporting their deepest, most cherished values and aspirations. So, yeah. And one other thing about guiding I wanted to say is in the Sufi tradition, it's said that the the glance of a, a master or a realized being, that that glance is not only revealing but it is creative. So you can think of how an artist is looking at something. Maybe they're looking at other artists' work appreciatively and critically. And then also they're having uh, a vision come into their heart or their mind and spirit. And then they're creating that through their art or poetry or music or people in science, people who are creating uh, something through physics, through all kinds of walks of life. So it's not just a spiritually realized person, or you could just say that those people are spiritually realized people. They don't have to be a spiritual teacher. They can be a school teacher, anything else. But um, anyway, the point about this is, is that when they look deeply into another human being, they not only, their glances not only reveals what is there, and the potential, but they have the magnetism through their breath and their glance to be able to catalyze latent potential in another human being. And I remember that with my first guide, Kahira Kolbi, is that I was with her one time and she just looked at me with the most amazing glance and her intense sparkling blue eyes. And it just kind of blasted away, like what felt like a big cloud of illusion or something from me. And that helped me to realize that that's a real thing. That's not just something you read about. I'd like to share a piece of music, which uh, before I do a presentation, I sort of listen on my meditation pillow to what wants to be shared. And what came to me, this being Good Friday, is a translation or interpretation of Rumi by Coleman Barks called Inside This New Love Die. And this is my own setting uh, composition of, of it, of the poem, Inside This New Love Die. I was kind of hoping to do like a, a musical of Rumi's work with semizens and all that, but I just really need someone to, to do the backing for it and I'll come up with the rest of the music. I have several of the pieces of music written. So I just imagine somebody being on stage and singing this with a very simple accompaniment. Inside this new love die Your way begins On the the side become the sky take an axe to the prison wall escape walk out like someone suddenly born into color do it now 
it now You're covered with thick clouds Slide out the side Slide out the side Die and be Quietness is the surest sign that you've died Your old life was a frantic running from silence Your old life was running from silence Your old life running from silence The speechless full moon Comes out Thank you so much. Welcome. Tell us again where the lyrics came from. They're Coleman Barks' um, interpretation of Rumi. It's probably from the essential Rumi, mm-hmm. that particular version. Yeah. And that brings me to a topic I would like to talk about today because it's a dear topic to me. It's called quitting. Everyone's like, <gasps> Everyone goes, that's how we react to that, right? Quitting. Oh, you don't want to be a quitter. I can't quit. I committed. Oh, other people are counting on me. I said I would do it. All those societal things inside and out. And this book is by Dale Doughton. D-A-L-E-A-D-A-U-T-E-N. It's called Quitting knowing when to leave. And this book has been a very good friend to me in my life. It goes through these four steps that he talks about that I think are so important, and we've talked about some of them already. The first is taking realistic stock of one's situation or relationship or conditions, and then projecting into the future and having a realization, wow, that really isn't headed there. It's, not, it's, he- it's headed in a place I don't want to go. A, I'm not happy with this the way it is. B, it's not getting better with my due diligence and my efforts. And C, I've had these realizations that something needs to change and I'm the one who can do something with that. Otherwise, I default to someone else, right? Is that any way to live? And then there's a fourth element, which is called a clean quit, is when you're able to just be able to quit. And um, they did these case studies of hundreds of people and asked them about all the elements of their quitting. And they found that those who had successful quits were the ones who could quit and not have regrets or remorse. It doesn't mean it wasn't painful and that they were sorry for the the pain they caused other people and their own suffering. But I just want to read a little paragraph that tells about this realization that's really important. A common element in the histories of most successful quits is a clear recollection of the moment of the decision to quit. The arrival of the decision is often described as being nearly mystical. I would say it is mystical. After weeks of worrying, I woke up one morning and just knew I would leave. Or, I had tried for months to make a decision, then suddenly I knew, down deep in my heart, I would quit. This is the clean decision. It is as if the conscious mind had argued both sides of the quitting case then left the issue for the subconscious to decide. 
One never knows how long this jury of the subconscious will be out, or if it will ever reach a decision. But if and when it does, the verdict is announced suddenly but quietly, usually during sleep or in a state of daydreaming relaxation. The decision is final, irrevocable. So I'm mentioning this because so many times in our lives, we must quit something that is holding us down, that is causing ourselves and other people suffering, that is taking up all our time and energy and money, and that it's a situation that doesn't look like the trend is toward anything better. Mm -hmm. So I'm wanting to ask if you would comment on that. It brings up a lot of memories and feelings and thoughts. So the, you know, Anayakan has an interesting teaching. He talks about resignation and renunciation. And they're, they're related to quitting. Resignation, he says, is when, I'm sorry, it's, it's sacrifice and renunciation. So sacrifice is when you're on the road to something. You haven't achieved it yet. You could achieve it, but you give it up to go to something that's more important or greater. So that's one example of quitting in his terms. And uh, the other, I think we spoke about earlier in his life in terms of giving up his playing of music, is renunciation is you've actually achieved something. You have something, and then you give it up so that it doesn't master you. You keep on going. You keep on going to something new. And, you know, in a more simplistic way, he also said, you know, it's like climbing a staircase. You want to keep climbing. You don't want to nail your foot to a step. You have to know when to let go and when to keep climbing. And I think you're right on the money. A lot of us get attached to, well, what we're talking about today, you get attached to a certain path, you get attached to a guide, you get attached to a certain way of doing things. You don't realize that the attachment is what's holding you back from finding something that's even more dear and more important. And in this culture, a lot of us are taught to feel guilty when you outgrow something. Yeah, it's not just women, it's men. Yeah. And I've had some really painful leavings, and um, I wish I could say I didn't have regrets. I do have regrets. But I also realized, oh, I was listening to something. And some of the most painful leave-takings were also the most important. I didn't have any choice. I had to do it. And my regret is that I hurt someone. Yeah. And I've had people leave me, and that's been painful. And and I really hope it's in the service of either a sacrifice for something that's greater, that has to be done, or a renunciation because, no, no, we, we got somewhere. And it's time to move on to something else. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is about scope is, you know, does the job or the relationship or the organization offer us scope to be able to uh, fulfill the purpose of our life? And that's really according to us. Nobody else is determining that for us. We are evaluating that. And um, in our culture, we don't like to acknowledge failure. And in order to go through this process of successful quitting, one must acknowledge failure. And then one must be able to do what's called futuring or visioning, seeing the future, how it would be if I continue along this line, or how at least by quitting, I have the possibility of something else happening. It may not happen, but at least I have the possibility. Yes. You know, like if you're in a a terrible marriage or relationship, and um, I have to say to my dear spouse, I'm not talking about us here because my spouse is on the call. I don't want any fear going on here. If you are in that situation, you know, and you think, oh, but I don't want to be single. And there's, it's, at least I have, you know, some financial support and some practical support, help with the kids or somebody will mow the lawn or, you know, and 
and all that, if you're not willing to look into the future and say, yeah, but I'm not happy, or I now know my spouse is not happy either. Okay. How do I see this happening in 10 years? In 10 Mm -hmm. years, like there was this really great thing about dating I was reading and it was saying people think, oh, you know, like we'll, we'll go to the nicest restaurant or we'll wear the nicest clothing or whatever. They said, you know what you need to think about is that in your life, potential life with this partner, you will share thousands of meals, hopefully, and you will sit across from this person at your best and at your worst And are you going to be able to share deeply? Are you going to have a deep friendship? Are are you going to be able to share your deepest, um, what's happening in your your psyche, in your heart, in your life, in your frustrations, your challenges, your hopes? Are you going to be able to listen to that other person and find them interesting? That's what you really need to think about. And so um, in this process of futuring, You have to be honest and you have to also be able to see, okay, if I stayed in that relationship that's not going so great, I don't even have the possibility of having what I deeply desire in the future. And if I just rely on, well, maybe they'll change or maybe I'll change or maybe a miracle will happen, you're going to still be in that. You're going to still be in that situation. Whereas if you have the courage to change, you at least have the possibility or the scope to be able to experience what you deeply desire. So I know in the spiritual guidance I received and also that I share with other people, I have these three inquiry questions that I like to ask somebody. And you're asked to respond from a felt sense place rather than an intellectual place. And those three questions could be, tell me a truth about your life. Tell me a truth about your life. And if you're doing this by yourself, you can just write down your response and then say thank you to yourself and then continue along that line. And then when you come to a stopping place, say, tell me something that you're longing for. Tell me something you're longing for. And then write the responses. And then the third question, tell me something you value. Tell me something you value. And I get a lot of mileage out of those questions. And I know that um, part of listening deeply to oneself and others is having some kind of venue for that. It could be uh, journaling, daily journaling, or I like to record my dreams. I record them on my phone first thing. Or having a trusted friend where you don't necessarily need to talk many times a month or a year, but every conversation is getting down to it, reporting that kind of quality of friendship. So that is so important to be able to hear yourself deeply. And that's the role of the guide and also have the capacity to listen in that way too. I want to bring up one other point with that too, which is there's a lot of concern that this could be construed as being very selfish and very narcissistic. You're only thinking about yourself. So there were two things I thought of as you were talking about this. One is... You do the same process in terms of what your role is with other people. I mean, you may be examining what is the relationship that's important to me. Or for me to be of service in my community the way that I value, I need to stop this other thing I'm doing so I can be involved in that. So that it's not just about me, 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 me. It can be about how do I fit into to my community, to my family, to my whole in in the best in the best way. And the second part is, I've become more and more a believer that if you don't develop this relationship with yourself that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you find out who you are, mm-hmm. what you what your purpose is, that's a relationship. If you don't find that, you're not going to be of the best service to your family, to your partner, to your community, to your path. I guess the way I think of it now is we each have to find our note. Mm -hmm. Each have to play it. 
the universe will put it together into a symphony. If I try to construct the whole symphony, I can't do that. I don't have a wide enough perspective. As long as I'm alive, I'll never be able to do that. But I have more, the more understanding I have about me and what drives me and how I can be of service in my own limited way, that gets put into the symphony. And if I don't honor that, we don't have a symphony because the note isn't being played. If I don't speak for me, who will? Right. Yes, and I like what you said about the uh, self-interest part. There's a quote that's really helped me in my life, which is um, also by Anait Han, where he said, human nature, well, he said man, but let's just say, human by nature is selfish. However, the selfishness of the foolish one helps no one, including him or herself, while the selfishness of the wise helps everyone, including him, her, their self. That's it. And I just really have been guided and helped by that. And in this book about quitting, the author says that an essential element in this is self-interest. Because the people who do something like stay in a marriage that's intolerable for both people, for the sake of the children, that isn't for the sake of the children. Research has shown that that is not helpful to the children. It's better for them to be in two healthier happier households than to be in that kind of those set of conditions. So it is essential that we own that because if we have done our spiritual work and we go deeply into that inquiry process, into our authentic feeling self, not just our, you know, ego sort of reactive self, but our, our felt sense, then that part is connected with the rest of the world, with family, with co-workers, with spouse, with our purpose. And so that's the hard part to get to, but that's what's about faith and trust and ultimately self-confidence. Right. Thank you. That was Mm -hmm. a beautiful quote from an icon. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. That one stood me well. If you, someone is going around being really unselfish, watch out. There's going to be a whole bunch of resentment <laughs> under that. Anyone who stayed in a marriage out of unselfishness, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want to be around that. Don't do me any favors. Right. <laughs> there was a, a study that came out about divorce, and uh, it gave me a lot of comfort. It, it said, the children generally do as well as the adults do. Mm. Yeah, there's no automatic prescription for anything. That particular prescription was, if the adults handle that situation relatively well, the children are going to do okay. Right. The problem is that a lot of adults don't handle their quitting, they're they're separating very well, including losing a job, losing... And it's not that you have to do it just when... Yes. And it it isn't like it has to be without any difficulties or you're not supposed to be angry. You're supposed to have this equanimity. I mean, I get worried when somebody has too much equanimity because it isn't (laughs) natural. They're not being honest. Well, the thing about it is he says that for a successful quit, you need to be able to look at the whole trend of the situation, not just one thing, someone made a mistake or had an affair or they did something when otherwise it was generally a viable relationship. Then to act in anger and just destroy it, you know, charred fields, that that is not a successful quit. And the people who did that in their interviewing process were, they were remorseful. And some of them actually ended up started dating, dating and remarrying their spouses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they did manage to have a second chance after that. But, and also to not make a decision out of depression, but to try to get some help to the point where then your energy is flowing freely again to be able to do right. that. Yeah. Sorry. We're not just talking about... I mean, we mentioned it, but I wanted to emphasize that we're not just talking about 
personal relationships or intimate relationships. When I left the leadership of a particular organization, that was really painful. For yeah, me. I didn't say it wasn't going to be without pain, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. And it was the right decision. Do I have remorse? I sometimes say my only remorse is I didn't do it sooner. But mm-hmm. actually, I don't have a lot of remorse. But I had a lot of pain Yeah. for myself, and I know I hurt some other people. So we're not just talking about you know, marriages or, or, or intimate one-on-one relationships, changing careers, changing houses. You know, yeah, giving up absolutely. Moving. Right. You, you had a piece, another piece of music you wanted to... I want to make sure we have enough time. Can you introduce that and we can close with that? I will. And just before that, I want to mention one other uh, thing that my kindly guide said to me when I was contemplating a second divorce with three children, 9, 12, and 14 years old, and no child support for the older kids. And I was just, I could hardly breathe. I was so afraid. And yet I knew I needed to do it. And uh, she said to me, listen, do you have air right now? Can you breathe? I was like, yeah, (laughs) barely, but yes. Okay. Do you have electricity in your house? Yes. Do you have a house? Yes. Is your house in a safe place? Yes. Do you have food in your refrigerator? Yes. You already have... Not She didn't say this to shame me. You already have more than 60% of the other human beings have on this planet. You will be okay. You will find a way. And I did. It was really frightening. But I did. I found a way. So at that time where I was just paralyzed with fear, but I couldn't stay, she helped me do that futuring or visioning to say, okay, this is a gift of gratefulness. Brother Stendhal, David Stendhal Ross was a friend of hers, and he wrote um, this book called Gratefulness, The Heart of Prayer. And really, that book kind of saved my life and many other people's lives by just helping to enter into gratitude for the what is, what is given in each moment. So that's uh, also an introduction to the song. It's a song I wrote when I went to music school after my second divorce, which was one of my deepest desires, and I hadn't been able to go as a younger person. So I was able to do that, and it's called A Wished For Song, and I didn't have all the lyrics until about a month ago when I was preparing it for NPR's Tiny Desk Contest, and I said, Universe! I need the lyrics for this, please. I've been listening for them for like 15 years. And then all these themes that we've been discussing today came together. And the most important part was, but you know life goes where you least expect it. Hope must be redirected. Love will arise in new names and new forms. And the function of hope is when we're just hoping, hoping, hoping blindly and not giving up hope and redirecting it is we're stuck. We're stuck in a place we don't want to be. And admitting that failure, at least of those particular circumstances or relationships, means a grace period can open to the all possibility. And then from that, our hope is regenerated and renewed to being a hope that is directed toward a broader audience. (laughs) Let's just say that. All right, so this is called A Wished For Song. A wished for song, a wished for song, a wished for song, a wished for song. Once upon a time I wished for song I loved to sing You sang along to heart singing Head over heels and love were we Then once upon a time I wished for 
loved to sing Our hearts belonged But you know life goes Where you least expect it Hope must be redirected Love will arise in new names and new forms Now's the time to resurrect That wished for song A wished for song A wished for song A wished for song A wished for song before we close is just just even in the space of this podcast you play three pieces pieces of music that were pretty different and one of my one of my uh, personal bugaboos on the spiritual path is sometimes 
the music that's been presented has been only one type. This is the only one that's going to be inspiring, like church music or Gregorian chant or the music of Anayakan. And I don't know, I give retreats and I play Tom Petty. And, you know, it's just, just in the space of this hour together, you've taken us through different ways of being inspired and feeling the beauty that's all around us. And yeah, it's all music, but it's different kinds of music and different kinds of poetry, different instruments. And it's beautiful. I just want to thank you so much for sharing the range of beauty and the depth of beauty that you bring through. It's been very inspiring. Thank you, Henry. I wanted to go like this with my hair. The, the people won't hear, won't be able to hear it, but they'll hear us laugh. When you said it, there's always the same kind of music, the it's sacred music. Yes, right. You know, yeah. I'm a composer, performer, jazz musician, classical musician, um, sometimes folk, rock musician, blues musician, flamenco musician, you know, and there just is not room for me in those venues. And I just wanted to thank you because when I first read what you were doing with Amber Light International, I was like, hmm, <laughs> you know, that thing that Scooby-Doo does, <laughs> the neck right. crane, you know? I was like, wow, yeah, that's what I want to do too. And I just really believe that it's through that kind of warm collegial collaboration that today's spirituality is being born one to one, group to group in friendship, that sacred yes. friendship on the spiritual path. And to be questioning like, what is spiritual? I mean, what's your belief about that? Is it just a concept or is it is that really spiritual? We make it spiritual by what we bring our heartful attention and kindness to it and creativity. So thank you for inviting me because, yeah, I have not found that many venues where I could just be able to share this plain spokenly and this many. Well, I really appreciate genres. that. That's what we developed this for. And uh, thank you so much for saying that. So I hope you come back. Thank you. I'm so honored to have been invited. And I thank everyone who's joined us today for the live recording. And I just wish that you be blessed. And also all those who are listening to this recording, that you may have grace in your life. You may have wisdom and clarity about when to quit and about when not to quit. Yeah. Thank you so much, sir. Blessings right. to you. Thank you. If you find yourself enjoying our podcast, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom, brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Henry Curtella, MD, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.